Is Alex joining us for this? Yes. Good. We, and he doesn't know what it is. I love it. Oh, good. good. I'm, this is exciting. Yeah. I love it. So, McKay, as you know, what's happening here is you and I are in the studio waiting for Gimlet CEO, my old friend, Alex Bloomberg, to spring this episode's topic on him. I told you so's. And I'm not saying right now that I told you that that was what was happening. I'm saying that this week's topic is the phrase, I told you so. And you say, hey, remember that thing I told you? It came true. And the person goes, oh, my God, you're right. And it's satisfying. I want to try it. So you. So I, I have never actually told you this. This is, I haven't I told you so for you, right? Is this what we're talking about? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Twist. No, I haven't I told you so for you. <laughs> oh, good. Okay, good. Okay. Yeah, no, I want to hear yours, though. From Gimlet Media, this is Surprisingly Awesome. I'm Adam McKay. And I'm Adam Davidson. And today, we are on a quest. We are in search of a satisfying case of someone saying, I told you so, and felt good about it. It felt good all around. And we have been talking about I told you so's for the last several weeks. And we keep coming back to this idea that shouldn't those be a positive in our society? I mean... I saw you do something stupid. I told you it was stupid. Then later, it was revealed that I was right and you were wrong. And I'm telling you that. And that, it, I should feel triumphant. I won. I was right. You should feel a little sad about it, but also like, oh, good. Adam is someone I trust on this stuff. But every time we came up with a time where you or me or someone said, I told you so, it was so unsatisfying. Sometimes it was outright ugly. Other times it was just, eh. But it was never, yay. And that is the quest that brought you and me and Alex Bloomberg into the studio so that I could tell him my I told you so. But then he turned the tables on me. I told you there was a housing bubble. <laughs> oh, yeah. Good. That is true. As you know, as we've talked about many, many times, you and I were like talking and talking and talking in 2005, 2006. You were a financial reporter for NPR. I was working. I was a producer of This American Life. We were talking about how whether there was a housing bubble. I was reading all these people on the internet who <laughs> said there was a housing bubble. Wait, and wait. You, yeah, you literally knew nothing, and I thought I knew everything. Right? That was the general like. I, well, I was reading people on the internet, but yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> you there was a lot of bloggers who <laughs> yeah. agreed with me. Right. <laughs> Let's be clear. Yeah. At that point, we were already friends for 10 years. We weren't working together or anything. You would just call me and say, you're my one friend who knows about this economic stuff. I think there's a housing bubble. Look, this is a time that I'm not very proud of. So <laughs> this sounds kind of pathetic. But I do remember saying, as long as they're pricing the risk accurately, I don't see how there can be a problem. So here's the million-dollar question. Did you, Alex, did you ever get the moment of, I told you so, or is this the moment right now? This is the moment. I've never said, I've never said, like, I was right, you were wrong. What were you waiting for? That is surprisingly awesome producer Rachel Ward. Uh, I was waiting for a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> all right, stop being a nice guy. Stop giving. We all know Davidson's a very smart guy and, and looks at the big picture. How does the I told you so feel right now? He just gave it up to you. I mean... I don't know. It wasn't that great, honestly. 
there was great satisfaction in being right, with the caveat being that that satisfaction came at the expense of like the world economy and the lives of millions and millions of people. So but, was it worth it? Yes. Uh, <laughs> but just barely. But like, it goes back to the way that I, the secret way that I'm actually a You're a dick in a, in a very public way that like is very apparent. I'm a sometimes. No, 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 no. Like in the way that we're, yeah. And, the, and secretly, I always think I'm right. And like, and so, and, and, and so it wasn't really like, I was like, of course I was right. Now we'll get to my, I told you so for Bloomberg later. But the thing I realized talking to Bloomberg is that the, I told you so it instantly puts you into this arrogant position. You go from soothsayer, someone who can see the future to just a know-it-all jerk. And just saying that, I'm instantly picturing in my mind, not Alex Bloomberg, but Ralph Nader. Ralph Nader, to me, is the guy who embodies that phenomenon. Yes, he predicted a lot, but he always wants us to know that he predicted a lot. In fact, he actually wrote a book and published it called Told You So. His whole attitude, everything about him is, I told you so. Now, in the case of Nader, uh, certainly a very bold title, but... If you read the book, he did kind of tell us so. I mean, he talked about the skyrocketing costs of college education years before anyone was talking about it. He was talking about tightening control of massive corporations over our government way before anyone else. I mean, Ralph Nader, I think there's no question if you tally the amount of lives saved from what he did for product safety and especially car safety, you could conservatively say that he saved 250,000 lives, maybe even half a million lives. And yet we don't like the tone of his title of his book. I know. When I think about Ralph Nader, so let me just tell you, last summer I was driving home from vacation. I was really tired. My, my wife, Jen, and our son, Ash, were in the car. It was raining. And I slammed on the brakes right on a puddle, and we crashed into the back of a car pretty hard. Like, the, the whole front of the car crumpled, airbags deployed. The car we crashed into was a very pregnant woman and her husband, who was a cop. And it was horrible. I mean, Ash was screaming his head off. Jen and I were so shaken. But everybody walked away totally uninjured, totally safe, because we were wearing seatbelts, we had airbags, my son was in this great car seat, the um, car had those crumple zones. These are all things that we can directly attribute to Ralph Nader. I don't know if anyone would have died if Ralph Nader hadn't been alive, but certainly there's a very sizable chance that either I would have killed or injured a pregnant woman, that I would have killed or injured my own most beloved people in my life. And still, right this minute, I'm thinking, that Ralph Nader is really a schmuck. <laughs> <laughs> it is such a strong feeling that even knowing all of this, I still think that when I picture Ralph Nader, I don't see my smiling son healthy and happy. I see Ralph Nader presenting as this guy who needs you to know he is right. It instantly makes me forget all the good stuff he did and just cast him in this negative light. So the very act of saying, I told you so, takes away so much of the good feeling you might have for somebody. But I, I wanted to know, what is it like to be that person, to be the person who, without doubt, did tell us so and didn't get enough credit? And it occurred to me, McKay, 
you and I know exactly who we should call to ask that question. We just need a little voice level. Can you tell me what you're doing this weekend? Probably going to play a lot of golf. It's going to be hot, right? 80-something? I like to play. It's good for my back to play hot golf in hot weather. This is Steve Eisman. He's a major character in the book and the movie The Big Short. He was played by Steve Carell in the movie. Uh, Steve was one of the people who fairly early on saw that there was deep, deep problems in the subprime mortgage industry, and he tried to warn people about it. He went to the, the credit rating agencies, he went to the SEC, and people didn't listen to him. Now, like all the characters in The Big Short, he did make a lot of money from being right. But I will give him credit. He tried really hard to put himself in a situation where he wouldn't make so much money by becoming a whistleblower and making the crisis not be so immense. Did you at any point tell anyone, hey, I told you so? Uh, once. And I felt kind of bad about it. Um, I had a meeting with CFO of Merrill Lynch in August of 2007, it was kind of a group lunch. He's telling us everything is fine, and I interject and say, listen, all, all your mortgage models are just wrong, and you're oblivious. Uh, he looked at me like I was a raving lunatic, and that was the last thing I said in the meeting. Uh, after the crisis, you know, call it late 2008, uh, Merrill was having a... Um, it's a cocktail party in some hotel and went up to the CFO and basically said, I told you so, but I didn't feel good about it because you could just see he was so beaten up that it was just being mean and I never did anything like that again. How did he respond? He didn't really say anything. What could he say? I mean, what was deeply unsatisfying with it all was that I was very early. I said, I said a lot. Nobody listened to me and... You know, the disaster happened, and so what's satisfying about saying to someone, I told you so? I mean, you know, they should have listened to me three years before, but they were too busy making too, so much money that they weren't interested. It's not good to be a Cassandra, to be the one who sees what's coming. No, it didn't end, it didn't end well for Cassandra. <laughs> That's right. I hear myself laughing knowingly as if I know everything about Cassandra in that tape, but I actually knew just about nothing about Cassandra, so I looked her up, and here's what I learned. Uh, Cassandra is a figure from Greek mythology. She appears in lots and lots of ancient Greek literature as this person given the power of foresight, of predictions. And in most of the stories, things go very, very badly for her. For example, in the Trojan War stories, Cassandra is given credit for predicting everything that would happen, including the Trojan horse. And then after the war, being kidnapped, treated horribly, and murdered. And even though I didn't know any of those specifics, I think that is all in the word Cassandra. When we hear the word Cassandra, we don't think, oh, that's someone really valuable. They can see the future. What a useful thing. I wish I could see the future. We think, ugh, that's a naggy jerk. And so many I told you so's are mired in this image of someone warning about something terrible, and the terrible thing happens, and the person is killed or humiliated. It's so depressing. Everything about it's depressing. No wonder we hate I told you so's. But McKay, you you were saying there is like one area of human endeavor where you're like, you know what? The stakes aren't that high. The sports world has tons of I told you so's. Uh, for some reason, you can do I told you so's in sports because maybe it doesn't matter. It's kind of a little bit of a make-believe world. 
Bill Simmons had a famous one where he said, don't draft that seven-footer from Ohio State, Greg Oden, draft Kevin Durant, number one, trailblazers. And everyone's like, you're crazy. It's a center. He's going to be really good. And sure enough, he's completely out of the league. I think he's in China. And now Kevin Durant's headed towards the Hall of Fame. So in sports, it's playful enough. You'll hear it in sports talk radio or everything. You can say, I told you so. And you don't really care because you're talking about other grown men playing games. Nothing makes the I told you so worse than when you first praise God. Like all praise to God. He's the only reason we're here. But this proves all the haters and doubters wrong. So it goes from like larger power to really petty, like in a turn. I mean, the Bible is loaded with people say, I'm telling you so. Like people warning people about what's coming. I came across this sentence from the King James Version of the New Testament from John 16, verses 2 to 4, where Jesus is saying, they shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. So he's warning the Christians, hey, because you believe in stuff, all these pagans are going to kill you. And then he says, but these things have I told you that when the time shall come, you may remember that I told you of them. That's a biblical I told you so, but he's doing the I told you so beforehand. Right, it's like the future conditional I told you so. God is certainly one that is not shy about saying I told you so from time to time. And I found an essay by a, a Christian named Bill Blankshane where he goes to some length to say, yes, I mean, literally the whole essay is, and we'll put a link on the website, yes, it's a jerk move to say I told you so, but Jesus gets to get away with it because Jesus is doing it in a different way. He's doing it in a loving way. You know, McKay, we don't have to go back to the Bible or ancient Greek myths. We actually have a modern-day Cassandra right here in New York City, and we decided in our quest to figure out, can there be a satisfying I told you so that we would talk to her? Uh, she's a comedy legend. She's an actress. Uh, she's an outspoken activist. She also invented the Lime Ricky which is a lot of people don't know about her. Please welcome Janine Garofalo. I'm sorry, Adam. It was the egg cream. Oh, I'm so I, sorry. I, I, mean, I know. I'm sorry. I cannot take credit for the for the lime, Ricky. It was the egg cream and the uh, malted. I also invented the sock hop. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And necking. Wow. And necking. So Janine Garofalo, I remember really liking her as a comedian in the 1990s. And then in the early 2000s, I was living in the Middle East as a reporter, and I, I wasn't watching American cable TV news. I had a, sort of a vague sense of the protests against the Iraq war, but somehow I was really clear on one thing. The figure who was most associated with it, the person in all of America who was most vocal, warning us, this Iraq war is going to turn out really bad for everybody concerned, was that comedian Janine Garofalo. I think that this will be one of the worst chapters in American history if it is perceived by the Arab world that a U.S.-led invasion that was not justified, not in self-defense, right. goes forward. Plus the fact, well, if we want to get Arab states that are churning out terrorists, there's certainly a whole lot of places we should be. Saudi Arabia and so Pakistan. Don't, unless we could do the whole Arab if region, don't you? are wrong, mm -hmm. all right? And if the United States, and they will, this is going to happen, goes in, liberates Iraq, people in the street, American flags, hugging our soldiers, all right, 
we find all kinds of bad, bad stuff, mm -hmm. right, in Iraq. You going to apologize to George W. Bush? I would be so willing to say I'm sorry. I hope to God that I can be made a buffoon of. Because the key thing for us is not that you were against the war. Lots of people were against the war. It was the specificity with how you laid out, here is what's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, you actually said we're going to get caught there for 12, 14 years. It's going to cost us $3 trillion. Anyone could know these things. Like I said, to do it doesn't make me a smart, no, no, uh, no. smart person. No, 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 but and there no was one... many people saying stuff like this. We'll they, give you the credit. I, I, when I went on these shows, it's not because I felt I was good at it. It's not because I felt I was brighter than the average person. In fact, I was a straight C student. There's, you know, and that's a gentleman mm -hmm. C. That was a gentleman C. I want to make that clear. <laughs> I am of average intelligence, I would say, and 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 maybe even below because I. I'm, I'm terrible at math, and I can't spell, and my penmanship is atrocious. Penmanship's the big one if you can't do that. Right, yeah. Yeah. very On tiny. public radio, we would only have guests with, with, with really good penmanship. Good penmanship. That was yeah. A big, yeah. But it seemed to me that the entire, much of the focus against the anti-war effort was focused at you in particular. Can you walk us through what that was like for you, just how you experienced it's that terrible. time? It's terrible. What happened? It's horrible. Like, what was I'm not one of those people that doesn't care what people think of me. I care very deeply, and I don't. I don't just shoot off my mouth to say, say stuff. I don't believe that any publicity is good publicity. None of that. Um, it was very painful. I had to hire uh, security. There were so many death threats coming to Air America and to my my apartment mailbox. What? Uh, you were I'm, actually getting I know. It's just, people do. That's, lots of people do. So you're it's getting just, like letters in your mailbox. Letters. You're opening like crazy them crazy handwritten yes. things. And Some without stamps. Uh, my mailman did not like me either. The only good thing that came out of it is I, at that time, lost like 25 pounds out of sheer anxiety, which I do, uh, which for a person who has battled uh, their weight since childhood, to me that was like, wow, my pants are really big. And, and that did, <laughs> Buoy me a little bit. I, I'm, I'm being quite honest about that. But we didn't realize that uh, usually those that write the death threats and make the threats are the least threatening to you. Then there was bomb threats all the time. Anytime I would do stand-up, somebody, some jerk would call in a fake bomb threat. Therefore, I would have to pay for extra security um, out of my own paycheck for where I was doing stand-up. But during that period when people would come to the show just to agitate. Sometimes morning radio people would send plants in. I mean, it was like a sport because it's easy to pick on someone like me. I'm looking at a Pew Research chart on public opinion about using military force in Iraq. And back in March of 2003, it was a wildly popular idea. More than 70% of Americans supported it. Very few, about 20% were against it. And the most public member of that 22%, as we said, is Janine Garofalo. And then three years later or so, it's about half of Americans against it, half for it. A few years after that, most Americans think that Iraq war was a huge, huge mistake. And that's where we are today. So obviously, we Americans got together as a group and said, wow, that war was a terrible mistake. We now see that. And Janine Garofalo is owed a major apology. And so I think, Americans, you remember this. We all got together and we bought her a bouquet of flowers. <laughs> and we got her some of those uh, lollipop cupcakes. And we sent her a really nice card saying, thanks so much for warning us. We'll pay more attention next time. <laughs> okay. Obviously, that did not happen. 
It was a lot more like Cassandra. We as a nation killed Janine Garofalo's career. Nothing will take away that I'm sorry that it didn't work out better for all the hundreds and thousands of people. And nothing will take away how very bad that was at the height of it. Uh, it, it, it is not pleasant to be a public whipping boy. And it may sound like I'm being self-indulgent right now because it's it's difficult for others to remember what it was like back then, how, how uber faux patriotic it was. But uh, it has left me in a position, though, where my career has never and may never recover from it, from this residual idea of, of me. But there was this one moment. She didn't know it was coming. She was just at home with her boyfriend watching TV. And this came on. Does Saddam Hussein have weapons of mass destruction? Janine Garofalo did her homework, studied everything she could. She worked very hard, and she got that question right. She was smarter than I was on that question. My answer was, I don't know if Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction. Janine Garofalo was also smarter than the director of the CIA on the most important question. So you hear uh, O'Donnell say your so name. So I heard my name, and I at first uh, got uh, got that sick feeling uh, in my stomach and um, started sweating. Traditionally, when that happened, nothing good is going to follow that, right? Like, a, you know, that panic. And then very nice things followed, and I cried, and I uh, um, got up and phoned him. And you call him. What's the phone conversation? Just say you were so right, and you took a lot of abuse, and and uh, and uh, on your behalf, I'm sorry for that. That you suffered, and you know that's then, an incredible phone so, call. No, it was good, it was great. For the record, can I just say, yes, sir. Janine fought valiantly for us not to let her have her you told us so moment. I can't believe you bullied me into taking <laughs> gratitude. I, I, you were good. You were no good. No one told me this was the kind of uh, atmosphere <laughs> that I would be exposed to. All right, so here's the thing. We we keep hearing these I told you so's and and you know the Janine Garofalo one is pretty powerful although it doesn't seem like she was given any room to say I told you so and she's too much of a decent person to want to do it. So she had someone else say, you told me so, and it's obviously an emotional release. Um, I guess I guess the reason I find this subject so fascinating, and it's amazing to see that we're really not finding any completely satisfying I told you so. They always do seem a bit petty, a bit childish, but it's this sense that like I want I want us all to go back and look at the faulty reasoning that led us to the horribly destructive choice. And that's, that's the reason I found this subject interesting. Listen to our advertisements that are coming up, and when you come back, you're going to be so fascinated and blown away by where we take you with this subject of I told you so. You're not going to believe it. I mean, Davidson and I are, like, just radiating with confidence over how great the next part of this show is going to be. Welcome back to Surprisingly Awesome from Gimlet Media. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Adam McKay. Today's topic is I told you so, and what do you know? We told you so. We told you to all the haters and doubters, we would put headphones on, talk into microphones, edit it, and then put it out so people can hear it. How you like me now? <laughs> oh, God. I like it. That's disgusting. <laughs> My favorite in the world, I told you so, is the trailer for the Justin Bieber documentary, 
where it says, they said it couldn't happen. They said he'd never make it. And I'm like, there's no one in the history of the world who they last said that about. That is ridiculous. Anyway. Now, Lewis Lapham actually, for Harper's, wrote a big piece saying how this Canadian kid, this musician, would never become big. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, before he passed away, wrote several pieces questioning Justin Bieber as a potential pop star. So now that that trailer's accurate. Yeah, that trailer is accurate. I guess you're right. Uh, before the break, we were talking about some really heady stuff. Ancient Greek tragedy, the Iraq war, auto safety, and the financial crisis. But to remind you, what led us into that intellectual journey was that I had asked Alex Bloomberg to come into a studio so that I could tell him so. But he immediately turned things around and he told me so. So finally, I had my say. So I have a, a different one in mind. So so you told me all this stuff. Then you convinced me to do a This American Life on the crisis. It was in early 2008. So financial professionals knew there was something big going on, but the average person did not yet really know. And I, again, I was fairly dismissive of the idea that we could do an interesting hour on the radio about mortgage finance, but you persuaded me and we did it. And it was called The Giant Pool of Money. It, that show aired in May. And in June... I met with you several times, and I said to you, we got something here. You and I have cracked a code of how to talk about economics and finance on the radio in a way that engages a big audience. And I think, like, we should run with that. And you were quite dismissive. Oh, yeah. I was like, no, that, that'll never work. <laughs> I said that. I remember saying to you, the giant pool of money, that's like a once-in-a-lifetime story. Like, we'll never be able to tell that story again. Like, it's just like, let's just let it be. But then I also remember you saying, I don't, I'm not that ambitious. I really like just being a reporter producer at This American Life. I don't want to be a boss. I don't want to run anything. And I was like, I think you'll like it. <laughs> That's right. I was like, I'm good. Uh, can you just state for the record what your job is right now? I'm, I'm the CEO of Gimlet Media, the company that's playing us all. Yeah. <laughs> I do kind of feel like if I didn't do that, you would not, Gimlet wouldn't exist. Oh, yeah. No question. So let me do it. Let me say, Alex Bloomberg, I told you so. Yeah, you did. You did? Yeah. That was a good one. Now, I feel better about that one, and I, here's why, I think. There wasn't a horrible, dark tragedy underpinning <laughs> that I told you so. Right. That was actually, like, personal growth. That was a friend challenging you. It worked out well for you. So him saying, I told you so now, is actually good. I feel much better about that I told you so. That's it. That's a good I told you so. Did it make you feel better? Is that something that you've been wanting to say to me for a long time and now that you've finally said it? So here's what I would say. Okay. It doesn't feel amazing. It feels a little good. I don't know. I feel like it's not like wildly. Right. It's just like, yeah. This was a big moment for me because so much about this conversation with Alex and how I am personally responsible for everything good in his life as well as the 50 people who work for Gimlet Media feels good except for one crucial, crucial thing that ruins the whole thing. I'm the one 
who had to ask for him to realize that. And I am now, even worse, asking all of you to realize that. And that ruins it. It really genuinely feels ugly and embarrassing and turns a situation that made me feel kind of like pleasant and proud into just this petty, grubby, little, ugly part of my soul. And McKay, you were telling me, well, hey, Val, we, we all have that petty, grubby, little part of our soul. In fact, you told me you have a witness to corroborate your own pettiness. Hello. Quinny, what's up, Adam? This, of course, is Colin Quinn. He was on Saturday Night Live back when Adam McKay was a writer there, eventually head writer. He's now a celebrated stand-up comedian. Quinn, do you, do you ever do this? Do you ever carry around sweaty little pathetic moments that you're like, SNL, Saturday Night Live is a great place for it, by the way. Yes. And I'll sort of like have these memories. Like I remember telling, this is so pathetic. I remember telling Lorne Michaels, like, there's this band that everyone's talking about called the White Stripes. You should have them on. You'd be the first show to have them on. You would look so cool. And Lauren was nice. like, oh, Adam, let it go. And then, like, you <laughs> say it out loud, and you sound like them. Like, why would Lauren care? Like, first off, you're talking about the band. You're like, right. it's not even, like, the main focus of the show. It's some 28-year-old kid in his office. Meanwhile, the guy's, like, trying to, like, merge with some other entertainment company and make, like, $500 million. <laughs> and I'm in his office telling him about a sort of retro rockabilly group. And, but yet, <laughs> in the deep recesses of my mind, <laughs> I'm like, he should have listened to me. There's a little warm thing inside you, like, I secretly know. I'm yeah, the one. Yeah, you're like, if you ever run into Meg White. Meg White is the eponymous drummer for the White Stripes. You're going to be like, hey, Meg, I have a funny story to tell you. And she'll be like, oh. <laughs> she'll be half interested. And halfway through, you'll realize it's not that good of a story. It's only personal to you. And you'd totally. be like, you know, this was like, you guys were, you guys weren't that big yet. I mean, you were great. I mean, but, and you'll start stumbling. Up. No, no, you guys were great. I'm saying Lorne didn't know who you were. <laughs> it's really embarrassing to admit. I've probably just through talking about Saturday Night Live told that story 10 times. Like <laughs> not as a story, but as like, yeah, it was frustrating. Sometimes it'd be cool acts you'd want to get on. And I would do it like it was offhanded, but secretly the right. message of that story is, I knew no one else knew. Meanwhile, by the way, 3.9 million people knew at that point that the White Stripes were awesome. Like, tons of people knew. Sometimes people get I told you so's over obvious ones. You know, I don't like people that say things like, uh, yeah, I mean, to me, Steph Curry is one of the best. You know, I always thought he was good. It's like, really? You mean the superstar that's been... Well, like when people go, De Niro, you know, I don't like his last movie. He's not, He's starting to... I told you he wasn't doing that great. And it's like, if you said that after Goodfellas, I'd believe you. Like some people's I told you so's come at the at a late time. There's also the retroactive I told you so. Like, oh, if I was in Germany in the 20s, I would have killed Hitler. Or Right. Um, Instead, we all would have been like, yeah. Yeah, we would have been. Uh, Standing on guard towers. Yeah. Going, hey, you know what? The guy's doing his thing. <laughs> you know, God bless him. I'll tell you exactly what the solution would be. If every time you said something, any time anyone made a prediction, they had to bet on it. Like with financially, you had to lay out money. And say, like, on this date, we're going to check. Like, in, in exactly. Right, in 2028, we're going to have a check-in. Did Tiger Woods ever, you know, win another golf tournament? Exactly. And then you, it's like you go, to the, you go to the window, like the racetrack, and instead of saying, I told you so, you collect like 800 bucks. You don't have to say, I told you so. 
because you won 800 bucks, everybody else lost. I love this idea. It would like, be great. I think there could be an and app. Then you put everybody's, and you put everybody's win-loss record on, you know, just online so that everyone can see. So whoever you're talking to, you're like, are you kidding me? Why would anyone listen to this person? You lost like $80,000, you know? It's yeah. like, I don't mind being wrong a lot, but what's really going to put me to an early grave is the people that are wrong but don't know they're wrong. I think that's ultimately all I want is the vengeance on them before I leave the planet. It's really not <laughs> me. It's those people that don't know when they're wrong that's really going to be the death of me. And you want? I want re-education camps, but I'll take uh, statistics put on the put on the line. I'll take them being publicly shamed. So I've actually been with you when you saw Lauren Michaels. You did not mention, hey, Lauren, oh, I told no. you so. God, no. I would come off like the biggest jerk ever. And I'm sure he has no memory of the exchange. So what do you do when you're like, no, but I did. I did. I told you so. How do I communicate that? And that is where I feel stuck is I think you don't get to say it. In fact, it stopped feeling for me like about economics or politics or history, it started to feel about psychology. Like, just what, what is the feeling? What is the emotion of I told you so? And um, Kalila, our producer, reached out and, and found uh, a psychologist who's thought a lot about this. Uh, my name is Meg Jay, and I'm a clinical psychologist at the University of Virginia. Do you want us to call you Dr. Jay? No question. I go with Dr. Jay if I'm you every single <laughs> opportunity ever. Well, that's what all the basketball fans say. As soon as I saw the topic that you wanted to talk about, I told you so. I immediately thought, you know, like your show, that, that's surprisingly interesting, that people don't really give as much thought to that as you would expect that they would. So I actually looked, dug around a little bit in the research, and there's practically nothing on I told you so or the I told you so phenomenon. But, you know, if you think about it, obviously, it's a form of gloating. It's about saying, I enjoy being right. I enjoy being early. And, you know, some people enjoy that and some people don't. It can feel lonely. It can feel frustrating. It can feel tragic. Um, you know, so I'm a clinical psychologist. I see a lot of people, you know, in a therapy situation. And when I find myself thinking, I told you so, I get no pleasure from that whatsoever. I, I restrain myself from actually saying it, but if I find myself thinking it, what I'm thinking is something's gone wrong, that someone has done something AMA or against my advice in that situation. And you could think of that as that's their failure to listen to me, but I'm in the helping profession and I have a job to do. So I also think of it as that's my failure to make myself heard, that something went wrong there. And it made me think of um, Bob Ebeling, who was the engineer who predicted the Challenger disaster. And he, I think, up to the very end of his life, lived with this horrible sense of guilt that he was right about that and that people didn't listen. And, you know, I, it's funny. I, we knew we were calling you as an expert on the on human psychology, but it hadn't occurred to me that as a therapist, like all therapists I'm imagining, you're sitting in rooms with people all the time where you must have the feeling like, no, don't don't keep cheating on your spouse. Absolutely. You must be in a state of I told you so just <laughs> every, every, every day. Um, 
Well, um, you know, let's just put it this way. Patient compliance is every physician's number one problem, um, <laughs> which means it doesn't really matter what kind of doctor you are. It is very common that clients or patients don't take the medicine you prescribe or they don't quit drinking or they don't exercise or they don't stop, you know, sleeping with Bob. Although, so to it, be fair, Bob is a great guy. Bob is a great he guy. Is a great he guy. has his he has yeah. his downsides. So it is you do find yourself there, but I think I mean of course there's a bit of me that says you didn't listen, but I'm also looking at myself of what what's going wrong here that I'm not getting through to you. You know, I think um, this will be more helpful if you just go into really specific details with names about some of your patients. <laughs> some... So when I think about my 4-year-old son, he's constantly doing stuff wrong cuz he's 4. <laughs> and you know, I really try to let him discover stuff on his own, but there's times where I'll be like, no, it really is better if you hold the fork this way. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and, and not in your eye, right? Yeah, yeah. And he'll say, I'm doing it my way, dad. Yes. And, mm-hmm. and, and I feel like the best version of me, the most loving, generous, good version of me is the one that says, Okay. Yes, I can delight in you discovering this, etc. Yeah. And is should that be my goal in life? Should I, as a human being, try to get in a place where I don't feel the need to say I told you so to people? Well, I can't tell you how many times I have worked with someone over a certain issue, trying to get them to see it or do it in a, a way that I think is going to be beneficial to them, and then they do it and they act like. That, you know, this was absolutely came from them. I'd never said it. And I zip it and think, good for them. We're all a little narcissistic, right? Like we all have Absolute, that in us. Absolutely. And that's called healthy narcissism. That, you know, healthy narcissism is, I'm awesome. You know, I, I'm great at this. I did, you know, I did well on this test. I'm doing a great job in my career. And, you know, without that, I think it would be hard to function. But, um, you know, where you see sort of compulsive narcissism of that, you know, people just can't stop um, sort of needing to let people know or needing to hear, hear it from other people. They actually don't have healthy narcissism. They don't have that sense of, yeah, I'm good. I'm competent. I'm, I'm more secure than insecure. But then there's like the pose of I told you so, where, which is, I mean, it's Donald Trump. It's seems to be almost all of cable news and much of the punditocracy in America where it's just pose. It's all about asserting things aggressively. Anytime you said anything that was remotely accurate, you take a thousand percent credit for. And then if you ever said anything wrong, you take zero <laughs> responsibility right. I for it. what you're saying, yeah. So when we want to say, I told you so, is that our... That seems to be a bit of that unhealthy narcissism peeking its its head out. Yeah, I mean, I think it is this need. It's not good enough that I know I was right. You have to know I was right. And better off, you have to admit it and tell me and, you know, let other people know too. Then you're really crossing the line into to something else. I think our big takeaway is, I told you so, it's natural. We all want to be able to say it. Don't feel too bad, but it doesn't come from the best part of yourself. And it's best to not ever say, I told you so. Right. 
And I, I told you so. I told you that was the situation. <laughs> you did. <laughs> <laughs> so that's it. I told you so is just inherently are petty and selfish and punitive and narcissistic. So, you know, we, we honestly, we go into these shows and we pick topics that are really difficult. You know, we did an episode on mold. We did one on cement. We do, did one on adhesives. And we are, you know, we're not network television. This isn't a studio movie. We, we love the idea that sometimes we get to the end and something's not surprisingly awesome. And it seems like with I Told You So's, they are narcissistic and petty and not gracious. And most of all, and this was the part that disappointed me, not really helpful. Not surprisingly awesome. Officially, I Told You So's are not surprisingly awesome. So, Adam... I was fully with you on this. And then at the very last moment, and I've not had a chance to talk to you about this, Kalila said, I, I think I think I found I think I found a surprisingly awesome I told you so. This is really true? Yes, this is really true. Just yesterday we found a story which was I told you so, and it was surprisingly awesome. It features George Ackles. He's now 39. He's a manager for Apple retail. But this story takes place. 31 years ago, he was eight years old. He's got this buddy, Ryan, over for a sleepover. So Ryan had my bed, and I was sleeping just uh, next to him on on a sleeping bag on the floor. And all was well uh, until about, uh, well, let's say 2 a.m. It was the middle of the night, and I awake to this just excruciating pain uh, in my ear. It was one of the most intense sensations I think I'd experienced to that point in my life. Uh, ran to my parents' room, which was uh, down the hall upstairs, and and uh, just started screaming bloody murder that you know there was something in my ear. And um, I will confess that I was something of a dramatic child. Uh, my dad and the whole lineage on my father's side is all actors, and so uh, I think they thought this was me being perhaps a tad melodramatic. Our dramatic little boy is... Exactly. I happen exactly. to have a dramatic little boy, a four-year-old. Him screaming in the middle of the night, we would just assume, oh, he dropped yeah, the toy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, my parents assume much the same, and and uh, but after, you know, the, the, they could tell that I was legitimately in, in some distress, and so my dad packed me into the station wagon, and uh, we get into the emergency room, and it's kind of the typical story of, of midnight uh, emergency care. You know, he tries to get us in, we're in the waiting room, and I'm just continuing to to, uh, you know, cry of, from the discomfort of this, there would be periods of intense pain. Uh, and then there would be sort of lulls in between. And it was the oddest thing. And I started to kind of put together that I think there's something alive in my ear. And so uh, this realization, Whoa, I, really? instead, I, I started to realize that what's happening is <sighs> it's, it's idle, you know, whatever it is, uh, is idle. And then it, it gets jostled or, or, you know, decides to move around. And I could feel that it was <laughs> that movement that hurt. Oh yeah. It was just, and, and, uh, even now it kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies just yeah. to talk about it. But, um, finally get into the doctor's office or, you know, the, the examination room. And doctor comes in moments later. My dad explains, you know, through my cries that, you know, I've got an ear infection or there seems to be something with my ear that's distressing me. And doctor says, oh, yeah, I'm sure just given the age and everything else, it's probably just an ear infection. Uh, breaks out, you know, the uh, the scope, you know, to look in my ear. 
and uh, you know has me tip my head over, lights the thing up, looks in the air, and as he's examining in my ear, he exclaimed, he said, "Oh sh!" And he drops. He actually dropped the scope and recoiled in horror uh, at the fact that it had moved. I guess really dramatically, and I screamed at the same time because of the discomfort of the thing moving around. Um, <laughs> Rachel and- Ward, our producer, is. I think. Are you crying? <laughs> You are, this is the most distressed I've ever seen you. It's, and by the way, I've seen you pretty distressed. It's so upsetting. It is so upsetting. So, uh, well, you can imagine my state of mind at the time. Yeah. So they break out, uh, I, I imagine it was mineral oil or something similar, and pour a bunch of this into my ear. And that, of course... Now the thing is just on absolute high alert, and uh, I'm in agony with this thing just clawing around on the inside of my ear canal. And, you know, after a few moments of, of having the oil in it, the doctor has me tip my head back the other way and kind of similar to, you know, when you get water stuck in your ear, he's kind of lightly tapping on the opposite side of my skull. Uh, and this thing comes out, it's and it's dead or dying at this point, but massive, just massive. Like how black- well, yeah, it was, it was a black beetle, you know, kind of nondescript, but I'd say it had to have been at least three quarters of an inch in length uh, to maybe even an inch. It was huge. And um, so I, it couldn't have turned around. I know that. So I, I have to imagine, although nobody corroborated this, but I'm sure the thing was knocking on my eardrum uh, trying to get further you know, in because it couldn't back out, apparently. So it really was basically trying to eat your brain. Yeah, essentially. Yeah, that's yeah. that's what we're getting at here. Do you say to your dad, I told you so at any point? I know that that happened probably many, many times. I specifically recall saying it at the at the hospital in the emergency room. My dad had, in his attempts to calm me down, had flatly said, no, there's nothing alive that's in your ear. So as soon as that beetle was out of my ear, as soon as the pain had subsided, uh, I, I know well enough to know that it, multiple times, I told you so, I told you there was a bug in my ear. Do you, does it really feel like it it changed your relationship with your parents so that you did have more credibility? Uh, I you know what I think it did. It was it was I felt much more of an equal uh, from that time forward in the sense that you know they they treated me in many ways like a, an adult member of the family. Not entirely. I don't mean to say that you know I had equal share in all family decisions or anything like that. But uh, I do think that they there was a certain respect maybe. I think that they started to understand that I can have, you know, real experiences and make real, you know, uh, assessments about what's happening to me and the, and what's happening around me. So, I feel like I'm I'm almost going to tear up. Like that is that that is truly incredible because it's it's horrifying. Obviously, it's scary, but that resolution is so beautiful and. It it's kind of the that's what I was hoping for with I told you so to hear a story like this to hear a child and God bless his parents that they were big enough to take that in rather than dismiss it that they were healthy enough wow that is a truly awesome I told you so an eight year old should be a little narcissistic and an eight year old should. It's a transitional age. You should. It's appropriate at that moment to say to market. I think as grownups, like maybe we just give up the right to say "I told you so." We have to find other ways to communicate warnings. But that- I think when when you're really talking about power dynamics, you're talking about 
low status, very little power, an eight-year-old being dismissed. And I do think there are cases in a modern world where there are groups that are completely marginalized that there are times where you wish these people could say, I told you so, and the powers that be would go, you know what? You did. And we're going to change. I mean, that's not happening. That's a little bit of a fantasy world. But hearing that story made me realize why this topic was interesting to begin with. So I was thinking of it entirely in terms of this kid was eight and it was his dad. But you're saying it's more generalizable that it's if it's the person with less power saying it and the person with more power actually can take it in. That's those are the conditions where it can actually work. It's also such a beautiful, strange, far-off story. It almost feels like a dream. Yeah. And what's wow, amazing is, is— I got to say, I got to say, Davidson, that you you surprised me one other time, which was the end of Mold, the episode on Mold. You truly surprised me. If anyone hasn't heard the episode, check it out, because it is a great ending. And you got me with this one. I really did think we didn't have it. And that is an amazing story. Surprisingly Awesome's theme song is by Nicholas Bertel. Our ad music is by Build Buildings. We were edited this week by Annie Rose Strasser and Alex Bloomberg. We were produced by the great and magnificent Kalila Holt and Rachel Ward, who's also great and magnificent, by the way. Lily Ames, Isabel Angel, Jacob Cruz, James Green, and Kyle McCauley provided production assistance. Andrew Dunn mixed the episode. And thanks to all of you who sent us your I Told You So stories. The inbox is still open if you want to send us a voice memo about a time you were right and someone else was wrong. Keep it to around a minute. You can also tweet us at Surprising Show. Email us at surprisinglyawesome at gimletmedia.com. We're on Facebook. And our Tumblr is truesharkattackstories.tumblr.com. I dare you not to click on True Shark Attack Stories. You can't physically resist. Surprisingly Awesome is a production of Gimlet Media. Gimlet Media, founded by Alex Bloomberg. Adam Davidson told him so. Of all the I told you so's we've gotten so far from our listeners, here's our favorite. I told you if you didn't pull over, I was going to shit in my pants. That's a fastball when it comes to I told you so's. <laughs> that is really good. You know what the best part of it is? It excuses the guy who crapped his pants. <laughs> Although I wouldn't call it satisfying. Like if our search is for a truly satisfying one, that one's still like you're sitting there with crap in your pants. That's true. And and actually a perfect metaphor for I told you so. Because in the case of my pathetic White Stripes story, I still had to stand on the floor of SNL and watch, uh, you know, uh, Backstreet Boys perform, which I'd I'd say musically is the equivalent of crapping your own pants. (laughs)